Amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team. There's something so soothing about that song. It's kind of restful. It's just beautiful to uh, uh, just to come together and to worship and to sing that song. Take your Bibles today, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. I'm going to be uh, on the second coming of Jesus Christ today. And uh, this is just a fascinating passage of Scripture. I ran out of time in the last service, so I'm going to have to cut some things out that I know won't work um, for the time that I have. And so I apologize for that, but uh, I over-prepared and got too much stuff. It's easy to do because there is so much on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled this message, Get Ready, Because Here I Come. Now, you know where I got that from? That's not my title. Anybody know? The Temptations, that's right. I put that, I just uh, put the second coming of Christ and I would see what came up on the Google, try to get some ideas for a sermon title. And there were the Temptations singing, get ready because here I come. And I said, that's perfect. <laughs> so I'm going to use that title. But uh, I'm sure they were thinking about something else when they wrote that. But uh, I, just, uh, I just think it's a good title to uh, look at today. Mark chapter 13, we're going to read verses 24 uh, through 37. We're just going to go right through in the Word of God and continue this verse by verse through the book, and so let's stand together now, we'll read God's Word. Verse 24, the Bible says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory and power, with great power and glory. And then will he send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one of his tasks, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or the midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You may be seated. Now, when we study this passage, this is one thing I'm so struck by on the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we study the passage, we know the who, the what, the why, the where, and the how. Okay, so we know all those things when we study the Word of God. The only thing Jesus doesn't tell us is the when. That's the only thing he leaves out. He leaves out the when. So he tells us everything else to know about this but the when. Even Jesus deferred the knowledge of his coming to the Father alone. Now today Jesus knows when he's coming, okay? But in his humanity, he restricted his deity and he did not know the hour that he would return in the second coming. But he knows now because he's now back into his original state when he started as far as all authority and all knowledge given unto him again. So even though uh, Jesus didn't know at this time, but the Father alone, I've often wondered why, why would he not tell us when? And maybe the reason is, 
if we knew the date was way out there and far after our lifetime, would we be as serious about our faith and would we take advantage of his absence? And that's kind of my thinking as I think this through because I know myself and I think I know many of you. So if you knew the date, how would you live your life? If you knew the date. For example, let's say it was 2350. 2350. Everybody here say, well, I probably won't be around in 2350. No, you probably won't be around in 2050. 2350. You know that old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play? Now, I'm not saying Jesus is a cat, but it's fair to say that we're kind of like those mice. And when the cat's away, the mice will play. And there's something in all of us as mice that we're prone to misbehave. <laughs> we're prone to misbehave on who we are. And in, in misbehaving, there is something in me prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's in all of us. All of us have that inside of us. And uh, if you know the cat's just around the corner, you are less likely to venture out for the cheese, right? You're, you're going to be careful if you know that cat's just around the corner. And so the truth is, what Jesus is actually telling us is he wants, to con he wants us to conduct ourselves in a way that we're ready, that we're alert, as if the cat's around the corner. That's how he wants us to live our life. The cat is around the corner, and he says, I don't want you to know when. I just want you to know I'm around the corner. I'm around the corner. And so that's the way you want to enter into this text because it's a very meaty text and very powerful. So I'm going to talk about five key facts about the signs of the second coming that can transform the way you live your life. It can transform it if you ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. Say, God, if you're real, just speak to me right now through your word. I'm just, I'm just the mouthpiece, but God's word can speak to you this morning. All right, number one, the sign of the second coming is not a secret event. It's important you understand that. It's not a secret event. The first coming, it was totally secret. It was only revealed to a few people. Everybody knows about his first coming, his birth, but this is not like that. The first coming, he came quietly, he came hidden. He came privately. Very few people knew that he was born in a manger, but the second coming will be very different from the first coming. It will not be a secret event. That's so important you understand that. We don't know when this is going to be. We just know the Bible says this. The Bible says that in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Okay, I want to talk about that first. This, this uh, sign that is not a secret event. The very first thing we see here is that the sun goes out and the moon, when the sun goes out, the moon is a reflection of the sun's light, the, sun, the moon goes out. So the sun and the moon go out. They're just black. No photons, no photons of energy being sent from the sun. So when the last photon is sent, everything goes black. 
And that's, that's the picture here. And so can imagine a world of complete darkness. Now, you may have some electricity or some powered things that you could turn on lights and stuff so that you wouldn't be totally in the dark. But I'm talking about an ominous feeling of everything being black. Anytime, even when we see an eclipse in our culture today, there's an eerie feeling about an eclipse when it comes over the earth. Remember a few years ago, I remember I was down somewhere in South Carolina speaking, and I remember when that eclipse came and how weird the road looked, and everybody was driving on the interstate, and I just remember that eerie feeling. Well, this time, it's all going to go out. It's all going to go out. And the Bible says that the moon will go out, and there'll be zero darkness. Now, understand this. I take a literal interpretation of Scripture with apocalyptic literature, you have to be careful. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic, but it's meant to be understood literally. I think this is a literal event, just like the first coming of Jesus Christ, but it has heavy, heavy symbolic meaning. So why would he want the sun to go out and the moon to go out? Because it is always a picture that God is angry. God is angry. And so at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he is coming back because he's angry at man. He is angry and he is coming back to judge the earth at this time. Okay, think about this. The first time he came, man judged him. The second time he comes, now he judges man. He's going to judge every man on the face of the earth at this time. And it is going to be a horrific judgment because he is angry. Why is he angry? He's judging sin. He's judging sin. That's why he is angry. I, I put a verse here, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 7, which tell, shows it more clearly. I, you know, I'm not going to read it because I'll run out of time on that, but write that down. 2 Samuel 22, verse 8, talks about the fact that the son is blocked because of his wrath, because of his wrath. There's lots of verses like that. But what you have to understand is when the sun's in its brightness, God is showing his gracious gift. But when he takes it away, he's angry. Okay, um, uh, the, fir, uh, the uh, death of Jesus Christ at 12 o'clock, all of the world went dark. The sun was darkened. Okay, that's the same idea. God is angry at sin, and so all sin is being put on his son, so the world goes black. The world goes black. It's the same idea. And so the Bible says when this event happens, Luke 21 verse 26 says, all men's hearts will fail. They will faint. The word faint is a word in the Greek which means to breathe out life. In other words, we would put it in our language like this. Men will go into cardiac arrest when the earth goes black. Men will go into cardiac arrest. Their hearts will fail. And it's an awesome thing just to try to get a hold of this. They'll be so fearful. They'll be so fearful of everything that's going on that they will go into death. So the sun goes out. The moon goes out and it's shining. And then it says the stars will fall out of heaven and all will go black. The powers that be will be shaken. The powers that be will be shaken. Now what does that mean? That word powers there is a word for the laws of the universe. It's, it's translated into our language like the laws of nature. All of the powers that hold the stars in their gravitational pull and the sun in its gravitational pull around the earth, if you will, I, I should say that this gravitational pull around the earth will be gone. All the laws of the universe, the gravitational pull, the speed of light, everything will be altered and nothing will work by the normal rules of nature, by the universe laws. 
It's an awesome thing to just try to get a hold of. And so understand this. At that moment in time before Jesus appears, there will be these weird cosmic disorders that happen on the earth and people will be terrified. I'll show you more about that in just a minute. So that's number one. Number two, the sign is the sun. Or you could say the sun is the sign either way, but the sign is the sun. Now this is in verse 26. I'm going to take a little bit to explain this one to you. It says, And when they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So first the sun has to go out, the moon, then all the stars have to fall, complete, absolute, zero darkness, and then the Bible says, then the sun will come. You will see the Son of Man. Now remember, they asked him, what is the sign, Jesus, of the end of the age? He's gone through 40-some verses and he hadn't even answered it yet, but now he gets ready to answer it and he says, I'll tell you what the sign is. It'll be the appearance of the Son of Man. That will be the sign of the end of the age. So, the universe is all dark and then out of nowhere, Luke says it's like the lightning coming across the sky. Jesus Christ will appear and the lightning coming across the sky will fill up the world with light. And that moment of time and that flash of lightning across the sky and everything will light up again. Everything will light up again. Now, I wish I had time to do a lot of this, but I went to some Old Testament passages, and I'm just going to mention a couple. There's literally a hundred. But uh, Zechariah 14.7 was a beautiful one. It talks about the fact that once this happens, we don't know how long this will be, but once this happens, there'll be no more night and day for a period of time. Listen to this verse, Zechariah 14.7. It shall come to pass, one day shall be known to the Lord. One day. There'll, there'll be no way to measure time right there because uh, there'll be no evening and morning. There'll be no night and day. Everything will be a day. It'll be like one long day. I don't know how long this is going to go on, but it'll come to pass. One day shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. And at evening time, it shall be light. It's awesome to think about. Isaiah 30, 26, this one too. In the millennial kingdom then, what he will do when he starts his millennial kingdom, we don't know exactly when he starts this. Daniel's a little uh, elusive on this, on the, on the timing of this. But um, when he starts the millennial kingdom, you know what he does? The first thing he does is he goes and he relights the, the sun. He lights it back up again. That's absolutely amazing to me. In the millennial, he'll relight the sun in the millennial kingdom. And the Bible says in Isaiah 30, 26, it'll be seven times brighter than the sun now. I'm going to have to get some SPF on that one. I'm telling you, a thousand. I'll probably have to get a thousand level. Some of you, you won't even have to be out there that long to get your nice little tan. You know, you'll be out there an hour, and it'll be worth seven hours of sun. It's incredible to think about. It'll be seven times brighter, and the Bible says the moon will shine as bright as the sun. <laughs> that's, that's beyond imagination here, but that's what the Bible says will be at this particular event. All redemptive history goes to this moment. This moment is the grandest moment of all redemptive history. Now, Matthew 24, 30 calls it the sign of the Son of the Man. 
Revelation 6 says when this happens, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, those who rejected him, don't want anything to do with him, live their own way, don't care about God, they're just going to live for themselves. The people who do that, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 6, these men will hide themselves in the caves to save themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. They will look for a way to get away. Men will run to the caves. Rulers will run to the caves because they know the wrath of the Lamb has come. And so they're getting out of town as best they can and they go hide themselves in caves. I wish I could say a whole lot more about that, but I can't. Revelation 19. I am going to read this one a little bit because this is powerful. I, I won't read it all, but I'll just, uh, about when Jesus returns. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and him who sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's an incredible statement in Scripture. Uh, let me say a few things about that. Why would you ride a white horse? After a Roman general conquered a city, he would conquer the city, then he'd be outside the city and he'd get on a white horse. He'd get on his brown or black steed, and then he'd crawl up on the white horse, and he would go into the town, and he would declare victory over the enemy in that city. And so really, this is an image of victory, an image or symbol of victory for Jesus Christ at the second coming of his time. He's called faithful and true. What does that mean? He comes to keep his word. He's telling you all of this, and he said, I'm going to keep every bit of it. He comes to keep his word because he's faithful and true, and he'll do what he says he'll do. He's going to do it. That's what he says in the word of God. He comes in righteousness in Revelation 19.11. What does that mean? He must act against sin. That's tied to one, one person who's saved. They'll feel this deliverance within them. They'll be delivered by God. But this other person will run to the cave and hide because they know they're facing the judgment of God. But he is going to act against sin on this day like he has never acted against sin throughout time. It's an awesome eerie thing for many of those people and so what look here verse 11 he says he makes war with unbelievers what does that mean he's going to come all against all those that have not believed he's going to come against satan the antichrist the false prophet he's going to come against demons and he's going to come against all the nations that have rejected him he's going to make war with them he's going to judge them it's an incredible awesome thing to think about Men will be epic sinners in those days. They will sin worse than you could even imagine to sin today. But they will sin worse than you. And God will come to destroy and judge many. Why? Because God's patience has reached its limit. God said, enough is enough. Heaven is never at peace with sin. Heaven is never at peace with sin. The Bible says in 1912 of Revelation, his eyes will be as the flame of fire. He will have laser vision. Nothing, nothing will escape his sight. Nothing. The Bible says on his head were many crowns. He's wear, I don't know how he's going to do this, but he's going to wear all the crowns that are left. He's going to wear all the crowns. I don't know how he's going to get them all on his head. It may be a symbolic thing, and I think it probably is, but the idea here is that all the other rulers are in the caves hiding. All the other leaders who have sought to make war with him have failed and have been disintegrated. And the rest of the rulers have run to the caves to get away from the wrath of 
the lamb, and so there's no other rulers left when he returns. So on his head is all ruling of the earth. There's no other rulers. The Bible says in verse 12, on his head is a name written that man, no man knows but Jesus. That's, that kind of sparks your imagination a little. There's a, there's a name that you don't know. Do you know over my lifetime how many people ask me, Pastor Rob, what do you think that name is? <laughs> how do you answer that? If I answer it, I know I'm wrong because no man knows it. So therefore I'm wrong. I can't tell anybody what it is because I don't know. Nobody knows it, but yeah, what do you think it is, Pastor Rob? I don't know. If I told you, I'd be wrong. See, there's no way you can know that, but you know what? We, we love to think about that. What could that name possibly be? I'll give you a hint. You want a hint? I'll give you a little hint, okay? Take up all the hymns and all the songs in life that have been written in honor to Jesus and then put them in a bag and put all the names of God and Jesus in the scriptures and put them in that bag and mix it all together and put all of that together and I think you'll have the consummate, final, ultimate name for Jesus. And we won't know it till then. You won't know it till then, okay? That is the sign of the sun. Number three, the sign is God on the move. The sign is God on the move. Verse 26 says, and he will come in the clouds with great power and glory. Okay, you probably don't study a lot about clouds in the Bible, and I've given a serious study to this this week. Anytime you read about clouds, just note this. It's associated with the movement of God. In other words, anytime you see the clouds, God is on the move. God is on the move. There's all the Old Testament verses say, and they're all consistent with the New Testament, when he comes, he comes with clouds. He comes with clouds. That's important, okay? Now, you just hear that and say, that's kind of cool, clouds. But let me tell you some things about it, okay? John says he comes with clouds. Mark says he comes in the clouds. Luke says he comes in a cloud. Matthew says he comes on the clouds. So in, on, and with. Jesus will be in the clouds, he will be on the clouds, and he'll be with the clouds. That's really cloudy, folks. you got a lot of clouds going on there. And I don't know how that's all going to work, but when those clouds are with Jesus, in, on, and with, they will just glow from the effervescence light that he proceeds forth. And it will go through those clouds, and you will see these glowing clouds as he comes across the sky. It's absolutely amazing to think about. Now let me go further. Psalm 104.3 says, The clouds are God's chariots. God rides the clouds. The chariot was the fastest known vehicle in that day in the first century and in the Old Testament. And so God is using the picture of the clouds as God's chariot. The best way to say it is, he's the cloud rider. A lot of gods in the Old Testament tried to be the cloud rider. Baal, Baal. He tried to be the cloud rider. But God says, I'm the cloud rider. Now, what did he do with these clouds? He filled the temple with them. He, uh, the clouds hung over Mount Sinai when the law was given, the pillar of cloud to walk them through the wilderness. Uh, you got the transfiguration where the clouds showed up. All of these things symbolized the presence and glory of God. That's the idea of the text here. The presence and the glory of God. 
Acts 1 says this, when he ascended 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back to the Father. The Bible says he was caught up to the clouds, okay? And then he went away into the clouds, into heaven. And then the angel said, hey, don't worry about it, man. As you see him go, you'll see him come the same way. He has to come the same way because that's how he left. All right? And so he will be caught up in the clouds. It'll be a physical, visible return because it was a physical, visible ascent. There's just no denying that, okay? Uh, now, I don't know how to do it. There's like a hundred different interpretations about what that's going to look like. Is he going to kind of just come down out of the heavens? Is, is he going to shoot down out of the heavens? And as the earth is rotating on its axis for 24 hours, will every eye see him that way? And then he lands on the Mount of Olive, and he puts one foot on the Mount of Olive, the Bible says, and he puts one on the foot on Jerusalem. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big feat right there. Uh, and so how's he going to do that? We don't, we don't know. Some people say he's going to come down and he's going to traverse like lightning. As the earth's rotating, he's going to be traversing around it, and then he's going to put his feet on the Mount of All. I read all kinds of ideas on that. We, we don't really know what that will look like, but it'll absolutely be an amazing event, that's for sure. All right, now I want to go a little deeper with that cloud thing. Okay? I, I didn't know this myself until I started studying this. Clouds are water droplets mixed with air. Just remember that, okay? Water drops mixed with air. In Job 9.8, the Bible says God walks on the water. Yahweh is the translation. Yahweh for God. He walks on the water. He's the water walker. Okay? So he walks on the water by the power of God, and it says in Job 9.8, he passes by. And here's what's interesting about that. In Job 9, God, uh, Job says, he walks on the water and he passes by. And then Job says, but I don't see him and I don't perceive him. That's the Old Testament. That's Yahweh. When Yahweh walks on the water, you can't see him or you can't perceive him. Okay? That's, that's, that's the experience of Yahweh, the Father, if you will, walking by. Now, what God does is he gives, Yahweh gives the privilege to his son to do it on earth. And so when Jesus walks on the water, listen to this now, Mark 6, verse 48, when the disciples were terrified alone on the sea, it says that Jesus made as if he would pass by. That's the same one for Job 9, 8. God passes by, Yahweh passes by, and they don't perceive him, they don't see him. But Jesus made as if he would do the same thing Yahweh did, but this time he doesn't pass by. He made as if he would pass by, but then when he hears the cries of his children, he comes to them. He comes to them and he stops. He doesn't pass by, but he goes to them in is distress as the water walker, the water walker. Now, Psalm 104 verse 3 says that not only does Yahweh walk on the water, he walks on the clouds. 
So that's a little tougher than walking on water. I'd say walking on water is pretty tough too, but, but he walks on water, but now he walks on drops of water in the air. He's the cloud walker in the Old Testament. That's Yahweh, okay? And so he is the cloud walker. Now what you've got to see in your mind's eye is when you see clouds, they're way out there, okay? They're way out there because he's the cloud walker. And so when Yahweh does it, he is so far from you, it's hard to understand who he is out there walking on the clouds. But the Bible says that's what he does. He, he walks on clouds. Way out there. But what God is doing here at his second coming, at the greatest event in history, Greater than walking on water, Yahweh turns over this incredible privilege to walk on clouds to his son. And he gives his son the ability to walk on the clouds. But he doesn't stay way out there. He comes down on the clouds to us, just like he did on the water. And he doesn't pass by. He comes down to us. That's why he uses the clouds. When Yahweh does it, he's way out there. When Jesus does it, he's right here. He's right here with us. It's just a beautiful picture. Um, you can just see him coming. And what he's going to say is something to this effect. It's over. I'm coming to you as the cloud walker. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more tears. It's, it's over because I am the center of God's presence. I am the center of God's presence. And that's beautiful to think about, which leads me to number four, the sign of his care. The sign of his care. The Bible says in verse 27, why does he do that? Because he cares. He will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the earth, or the farthest end of heaven. So when he comes back in the clouds and he kind of lands on earth, the first thing he does is he calls out to his angels and he says, go find them. The ones that were the elect that lived through the tribulation period. Some of his believers, some of those who put their faith in Christ, died in the tribulation. They're up in heaven. So he says to those angels, he says, go find them in the furthest parts of heaven. Go to the farthest points of heaven and bring them back down. And then he says, the other, go find the other ones. Where are they? They're hiding. Remember, after the abomination of desolation, they were told to hide. How would you survive three and a half years hiding from the Antichrist and from Satan? This is absolutely amazing to think about. But God elected them to be from the middle of the trib to the end of the trib. And now he says to these angels, go get them. And they find them through these caves and through these places that they're hiding and they pick them up and then they carry them back to the Lord. The absolute care. Now what would, would you feel like if for three and a half years you were in hiding? They were scared. They were lonely. They were tired. They were wounded. They were abandoned. They were confused. And now Jesus says, it's over. It's over. Human history is over. Everything about sin, everything that has destroyed your life is over. And then he will sit down on his glorious throne. 
It's, it's just beautiful. Got to go on. Number five, the sign of two parables. The sign of two parables. He gives these two parables. He talks about the fig tree first and the servants in the house. I'm not going to read this all, but he says you can look at a fig tree and when you see things happen to the fig tree and the leaves get long, you know summer is near. You can tell what's coming. Okay? What he's saying to the people in the tribulation period is, after a winter of tribulation, that second half, a winter of tribulation, he says, just know the summer or the spring of blessing is coming to your life. Just, just look at the fig tree and know that just hold on, I'm close, I'm ready, I'm near. He says in verse 30, I'll just pick out a couple verses. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation. He's not talking about the disciples there. He's not talking about us. He's talking about the people that made it from the abomination to desolation to the second coming of Christ. He's talking about that generation. I've elected them. They will not pass away until the angels go find them hidden away from the Antichrist. So it's a beautiful Beautiful thought there. And all these things have to take place before that will happen. He says in verse 32, But on that day or hour, no one knows. Now let me just say something to you here, okay? I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. I did in the last service. I regretted it. Let me just say this. Don't play semantics with that text. Don't you get taken and fooled by these people who are so into prophecy and they'll say, well, Jesus said you don't know the day and the hour, but that doesn't mean you can't figure out the week and the month and the year and the decade. Don't you fall for that. That is a misinterpretation of that scripture. Okay? I don't have time to go into that, but listen to my last time in the, te in the other service where I went into that one more in depth about that phrase there. But if you can't see it in that phrase, look at verse... 33, see to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. There he says it even broader. You see the word appointed time there? That's the word in the Greek, epic. We get the word seasons, and actually it's plural in the Greek. You don't know the seasons. Don't you listen to people say, we only don't know the hour and the day. Maybe we could figure out the week or the month or the season or the year or the decade. Or the century, Jesus said, you don't know any of that. Don't be, don't be trying to figure that out. And don't go after people because they're going to use fear to get you. And that fear is going to play on you, especially now. I told you they'd start playing fear on you to get you watching their podcasts and getting you to go after that. Don't you do that. Jesus said, nobody knows the seasons. And that word seasons can be as broad as the day of the Lord. That's a thousand years, by the way. So who knows? Jesus said, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to know. Don't be figuring it out. It's not what he wants us to do, okay? Um, wish you could do more with that. I can't. So let me make an application of that. You don't know the seasons. So since you don't know the seasons, you don't know the years, you don't know the decade, you don't know the century, be on the alert. Be watching. Why? He gives the parable of the guy um, who owns a house, and he leaves. And then he says to all the workers, the servants, he says, you got work to do. You got a task to do. You focus on your task. Don't you be worried about when I'm going to return. You just keep doing what you're supposed to do so that when I return, you're ready. 
you're alert, you're prayerful, and God can say to you, well done, you good and faithful servant. That is so important. You know the mistake I made when I started out in ministry? The mistake I made is I wanted to know my big purpose. The mistake I made when I was in high school is I wanted to know what's the big purpose for me? What am I supposed to do? So I could try to be successful at what my big purpose was. And, and I just don't find that in Scripture. The more I look, the more I look, he says, you're a servant, you got a job, do what you're supposed to do today. Okay? That's, that's so important. Don't get caught up in the big picture that you miss the fact that I'm concerned about what you do every day. Um, whatever your hand finds to do, he says, do it heartily unto the Lord. Everything you do is for God. Don't, don't spend your life just trying to find your one thing, your one thing. No, no. He says, every day, whatever you have to do, whatever is required of you, you do it with your best focus and attention. You got a job, tomorrow you do the best you can at that job. You be on time. Don't be late. Why? Because you weren't faithful to be late. Be there on time. That's what he's looking for. The little things that demonstrate your faithfulness. Be alert. Be ready. Okay? That's far more important to God than you trying to figure out the big thing or, or, or what's important or what's going to be successful for me. God says you do those little things on your job. As a parent, as a student, as a child, do your homework. That's, that's what's required of you on that day. Do it. That's, that's faithfulness. Your job, your family, your friends, your free time. Make it all give honor to the Lord. I don't have time to tell you all that. Okay, I, I want to tell you, I, I, met with, I was speaking at a conference here not too long ago, and a youth pastor came up to me and he said, he said, I don't hardly study anymore. So what do you mean? He said, well, none of the kids listen anyways, and I'm not going to give all that time to study if they're not even listening. And I, I was sitting there thinking to myself, you stopped laboring hard because the kids aren't paying attention? He said, yeah, that's right. I didn't know what to say to him. I said, you know what you need to do? He said, what? I said, you need to repent. You need to... Who cares what the kids do? Who cares if they fall asleep? Your faithfulness before God is all that should drive you. Now, do I want to be interesting? Do I want to give you my best message? Yes. But ultimately, I know I'm preaching to an audience of one. God Almighty. So live for that. Okay? Uh, I'm going to have to close this out. I knew I would. I'll have to skip a bunch of stuff. Um, live for Jesus all the time. That's a good way to say it. But that doesn't mean reading your Bible 24 hours a day. That's a shallow view. That's not what it means to serve God. Serving God is how you react to your 
everyday schedule, how you react to your spouse, how do you treat your spouse, your waiter, your friend. Did you get to school on time? Yes, that's what it means. That was faithfulness. Are you a person of integrity? Do you watch the right things? Do you enjoy your meal with sweet tea? Absolutely. Did you get consumed by gaming and you checked out on your family? Are you spending all your time searching Amazon and Etsy and the internet and all you do is scroll and scroll and scroll? You're blowing it. You're blowing it. Because you, you, faithfulness is just a one day-by-day -day thing where you're faithful to your task like a servant in a house every day, not knowing when the master will return. So here's the question as I close. If he came back now, would you be ashamed of last week? Yes or no? If he came back now, would you be ashamed of last week? Yes or no? Or would you say something like this, Jesus, give me a couple more weeks. Give me a couple more weeks. I need to get some things ready in my life. I need some time to do better. Okay? That attitude tells me you aren't ready for his return. You got something you need to get right. You got something in your life that's not right, something in your life that's bugging you, bothering you, and you need to get it right so that you are a servant doing the tasks every day you need to do so that when he returns, you're ready. That's what I would say is the anticipation of Christ's return. And that is a healthy Christian attitude. Let's pray. Let's pray. Every head bowed, eyes closed, just as I've preached the Word of God to you. It may be that you're here and you would have to say honestly before God, I'm not ready. If God returned today, I'm not ready. It may be that you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never repented of your sin. You never owned it and said, man, I'm guilty. You don't have to convince me of my sin. I'm guilty. That's where God wants you to start. God wants you to own your sin. Admit it. Say you're guilty and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't try to make up for all your sin. That's why Jesus came the first time to pay for your sin on a cross. And he shed his blood for you. But if you'd repent of your sin and claim him as Lord and Savior and say, Jesus, save me, he'd save you. And heads bowed, eyes closed. If there's someone in this room right now that would say, you know, I need that prayer. I need to make that prayer right now. I need to be saved. Would you just lift up your hand? No one's looking around, but I want to see it. I see one in the back there. Is there another? You just lift up your hand. Yes, I see it down here in the middle section. Is there another? Lift it up and hold it so I can see it because I want to know. This is serious stuff. Okay, I saw two hands go up, so I'm just going to pray for those two. If you've made that decision right now, I want you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner nothing I can do to save myself but you came the first time to die for me on a cross paid the price for my sin I trust you I believe you be my Lord and Savior save me those two who raise their hands just make that your simple prayer I believe on the authority of God's word. 
He saved you. It's not a prayer. It's a decision. It's a decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. And now he wants to make you into the person he wants you to be. You can even pray that to God. Say, God, help me to be the person you want me to be. Now I come before everyone in this room that knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Are you ready? If you returned right now, are you ready? Yes or no? Yes or no? If your first thought was, I need a week or two to get things going, it tells me you're not ready. That's not the attitude. There's something in your life you're needing to get ready need to make it right or whatever it may be I hate to make it specific because I don't know how God's dealing with you but the spirit of God may be speaking to you get ready child be alert be watchful be faithful to the daily things I called you to do because in an hour you know not I shall return father I pray you take this message and still to the hearts of your believers and to these two that have raised their hands, Father, the reality of that walk can be made clear in their life. God, I lift it up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The praise team is going to lead us in this song. If there's a need in your heart this morning, God's speaking to you about something personal you'd like to bring to the altar. The altar is always open. We have some folks that want to help pray around you. If you want that, uh, they'll come around you. If you just want to pray alone, just keep continue to pray alone. But if you want them to pray with you, They'd love to do that with you. So the altar's open. Let's let's sing together.